Well, I got a couple of questions here. Has, have you guys been keeping up on your reading? Have you been reading ahead in Isaiah? Anybody? No? Well, I'm highly disappointed. Okay. Well, even if you haven't been reading ahead, if you've been keeping up with the study, and, and I recognize most of you have been here on a regular basis, not everybody, but most of you, it's been a little bit, um, I don't know, a lot of judgment lately, hasn't it? That's part of the reason why Rob taught 10 chapters one week, because uh, all of them were about judging the nations. There, was, there were refreshing highlights and hope built into those chapters as well. Um, but if you sat down and read all of these, especially in, in one sitting or even in really what's a pretty short time span like what we're doing, going through each of these chapters, this mood of judgment and ongoing judgment, an unrelenting God of judgment seems to come across. Well, there's a few reasons we should understand of why that is. Um, it's not because God is unrelenting, even though in some of the chapters we read, God's saying that even though you've suffered all these things, my hand of judgment is still outstretched against you, right? I'm not relenting yet because his judgment wasn't complete. Um, and he was speaking directly to Israel and to Judah in those, um, in those passages and also to other nations, but primarily to his own people. Um, but it's not because God is impatient, as we might think of impatience. Um, consider a couple of key points here. These, um, well, first of all, consider that this rebellion, this idolatry that had been going on, this was not something new. Uh, this has been happening, or God's been putting up with it for at least 200 years during the king's, the, during the monarchy, right? The king's reigns, um, this divided period of the kingdom started in 931, and we're probably right around 720-something in the time frame where we're at chronologically, uh, just before the fall of, Assyria, or the fall of Samaria, the, the fall of uh, Israel, the northern tribes. So at least 200 years. Uh, so that's pretty patient, right? Well, consider that even the 100-year span before that or the 75-year span before that, King Solomon, he was a pretty righteous guy, right? I mean, he didn't have, there was no idolatry happening in Israel under King Solomon. Right? Here, one scoffer. Thank you for that. Yeah. No, actually, King Solomon, it says in uh, 1 Kings 11, 6 through 10, it says that King Solomon was so influenced because of his many wives that he actually faltered into idolatry, right? Um, and it wasn't because, well, it wasn't necessarily just because he had so many wives. It was where they were from. It was because he married people. He married foreign wives and, and brought these influences from other cultures. When God had expressly forbidden that, they were supposed to uh, stay within their own community, marry people with a, light, with a similar faith, right? Not expand out. Um, so, well, let's go back a little further. King David, a man after God's own heart. Was King David an idolater? Some brave souls up here shaking their heads, yes, yeah. Yeah, uh, there's one really clear indication. Now, King David was a man after God's own heart. Certainly, he had his own problems with um, idolizing things. Um, and there's one verse, 1 Samuel 19, 13. You remember when... Uh, Saul's trying to kill him, and she send, he, he, Saul, sends soldiers to David's house. Now, this is after Michal and David are married, Saul's daughter. And what does she put in the bed to represent David? Says so she puts an, an image there. It's actually a house god. She put an idol there. So it says that, that Mike Michal put a, a house god essentially into the bed to fool the soldiers uh, or an image and the same word is used of idolatry, of, ha of house god in other verses. So apparently, whether King David was actually an idolater or not, he allowed idolatry into his home. He allowed his wife, his wife, at least one of them, to be an idolatrous person. So, um, so this rebellious heart, this idolatry, goes back at least all the way to King David, right? And my point isn't to call out King David. He is a man after God's own heart. Maybe the best example we have in the Bible of someone to follow, even though... None of them are, none of the people in the Bible are other than Jesus. None of the people in the Bible are there to give us an example of someone to follow um, necessarily because they're all fallen, fallen people like we are, right? 
But God's patience had been put to the test actually even before this. Uh, and you guys all know this. I'm not telling you something you don't know. But you go back uh, to Mount Sinai and how rebellious the people were, even after seeing God's power at work, delivering them from Egypt and hearing God's thunderous voice and saying, Moses, don't let him talk to us again because we'll surely die. Um, and before that, of course, Moses, when he was called, he's like, Lord, I'm not worthy. I can't talk. I'm not your man. Find somebody else. Rebelliousness, right? And before that, Adam and Eve, of course, the beginning of that. So the ongoing question that, that humanity has faced from the very beginning is, will we trust God? It's the same question that we all face on a daily basis. Will we take him at his word? Or will we continually find ourselves putting our own wisdom or the wisdom of, uh, wisdom of humanity in a place above God? or even on par with his. God says, trust me. I have your best interest at heart. I know what you need. The enemy says, you can be like God. You can know good from evil. That's, that's what he told Eve, right? If you eat that fruit, your eyes will be opened. You'll, you'll be able to discern for yourself what's good and what's evil, what's right and what's wrong. So not only knowing what it is, but actually deciding for yourself, deciding for ourselves. And what have you noticed about this deciding? When everyone is left to decide what's right in their own eyes, like it says at the end of Judges? Well, we often choose the exact opposite, don't we, of what's good? And we see that, we see that in our culture. We see that in our society where good things are now being called evil, and evil things are being called good where in fact people are living their lives as if good is evil and evil is good. Well, how can this be? It's because the old lie continues to be per perpetrated on humanity. Whatever feels good goes. Just do it. Whatever is right for you. Create your own reality. The ultimate replacing of God by humanity in this. Think about this. Um, God spoke, actually I would argue still speaks things into existence, even, the creative, even though the creative order has been done and it's, said it, it's, it's a done deal, right? But God speaks and things happen. It's his thoughts turned into words that become reality. Philosophies that you might hear promoted by a particular celebrity TV people or famous people in our culture and our world uh, based around books like The Secret. Are you guys familiar with The Secret at all? Or The Alchemist? Another one that's very similar along those lines. Um, and also in, at one level, books like Your Best Life Now by a prominent pastor in our country, right? Um, all of these are rooted in the idea that you can create your own reality. But let me remind you, we're invited into God's story, not the other way around. It's not our story saying, God, come along and bless what we're doing, but it's God saying, listen, this is what I'm doing in the world. I want you to be part of it. Join into my story. Um, take your role that I've given to you and live it out. Uh, all, of in creation, all of creation, you, me, everything else in it is created for his glory. On a human level, that sounds really self-centered, doesn't it? Sounds, sounds egotistical, sounds narcissistic. Um, but God is actually worthy of that centeredness, of that self-acclamation, of that glory that he wants us to give to him. He's actually worthy. Why? Because he's holy, because he's righteous, because he's just, because he's true in every sense of the word, because he's good, right? He's just, he's good. <laughs> hmm. Contrast that for a moment, these books that I mentioned, and think about how they, these philosophies, how they're telling you to think about yourself. They're telling you that you're the center of the universe. You can create your own reality by speaking it enough times, by um, the power of positive thinking, right? This, this idea that, you, that by exuding some kind of good force from the world, you can create reality around you, that you can actually be God, is what they're saying, because that's what God does, and only God does that. Um, 
it, almost, it reminds me of some of the things... It reminds me of some of when... when uh, I'm going to just... I want to be careful here. Uh, politicians in general will tell a story enough times, an untruth, right, until people start to believe it. And this is not just one particular party or the other. They, they both do this. They're both very good at deception. Um, we could talk about who does it more often if you want to afterwards when things aren't being recorded. But, uh, but you tell a lie. We do this to ourselves sometimes too, or we do it to people that we... That we people in our people in our sphere of influence, you know, we'll tell a lie until we actually start to believe it ourselves. Um, so this is, this is that idea. It's the same thing that, that these books are trying to, pr- to push us into, this philosophy that, again, that we can speak things into existence, that we can do something that only God can actually do. Um, all right, so a little bit of a rabbit trail there. But the point I'm making is that we read this story of judgment, these stories of judgment, these oracles of, jo- of judgment, we read them over a very short period of time. We see all this judgment and wrath. Uh, we get the idea that God's impatient or that he's unrelenting. But these oracles actually, we've got to keep in mind, these oracles actually happened over a period of years, not just a few months or a few weeks or something. It's over a period of years that Isaiah is going into, into court and he's sharing these oracles. He's sharing, he's sharing with King Ahaz um, and then later on, he's sharing with uh, Hezekiah um, what the Lord has told him is coming about and what's going to happen. So it's, it, it's kind of like reading somebody's personal journal. It's, it's their life condensed, right, into a, in, or reading somebody's biography. I mean, you've got three to 500 pages that represent somebody's whole life. So you get the idea that all of these things happened in a very short period of time. And especially, and I would encourage you to do this if you don't, if you're, write, if you're writing down, if you're journaling your own experiences with God, it's really a great reminder to go back and to read and to see the things that he's done for you, that he's done through you for other people as well. Uh, and, and if somebody else picked that up after you were gone, they might think, wow, look how exciting this person's life was. Well, if you live to be 70 or 80 years old or 100 years old, um, those things are spread out over a long period of time. So it's not as intense as it seems when you're just reading it. The Bible is very much the same way, especially in the prophets in, um, in Isaiah, where we're at now, it's not any different. Uh, they happened over a period of years. They were preceded and also followed by a lot of other prophets that were speaking into Israel, into the northern tribes and speaking into the southern tribes, warning them of judgment to come for disobedience, um, warning them... Uh, Warning, but also encouraging them to do what? To trust God, right? The same thing that's encouraging us to do. That's part of the reason we spend as much time as we do in the Old Testament is it should come as an encouragement to us. It should come as an example um, of what happens if we're not trusting God. And not necessarily just punishment, but also the idea of discipline. Um, and then on the, in contrast, the blessing that we can receive in trusting God. So, um, so again, it's this idea, this encouragement to trust God, and that comes at no matter what situations you're facing, no, no matter how dire the situation is that's before you, no matter how impossible it seems. Um, because think about the, the position that they were in. Um, there's this monster, Assyria, that's planning to come down and, and wipe them out, right? And they're trusting in people's plans and other kingdoms rather than trusting in God. That doesn't seem that crazy on the surface. I mean, at one level, it's like, well, yeah, you want to make treaties with people that are strong, right? We want to make, we want to have good treaties with other countries that, that uh, support our views and are strong like we are. Or the alternative, like Isaiah was saying, is, well, actually, don't do that. Just trust God. It's a better route. And that's the question that's before Israel and Judah throughout the book of Isaiah. Will you trust God or are you going to trust your own means? There's also another question being offered up here. It's not spelled out quite as clearly, um, and, it, and it's this. And there are some others as well that we'll discuss. But one of the other primary questions that's being asked is, will you learn from other people's mistakes? Can you learn from other people's mistakes? Uh, there's a lot of wisdom 
in being able to learn from mistakes that you see happening around you. Um, there's also a lot of wisdom in learning from your own mistakes, right? So uh, punitive systems, our justice system, it's designed to deter certain behaviors, right? Uh, we put people in jail because of, of certain behaviors that they have because they commit crimes, right? And we do that for two purposes. One is to protect the society from those people. Um, and the second is to deter other people from getting involved in the same kinds of things, right? From, do, from, from performing the same behaviors, uh, for, from uh, perpetrating the same crimes. So I'm not going to debate uh, which behaviors deserve which punishment. There's plenty of room for that, corporal punishment, everything else. But, but the point here is that deterrence is actually quite effective when the deterrence is uncomfortable enough to actually deter people from behaviors, which is the idea, right? Um, there are a lot of problems in our justice system, and, and we could talk about it for hours. That's not the uh, idea here. Um, but statistically, this happens. When, dis when deterrence increases, crime decreases. That's a fact. Um, and also vice versa. If the deterrence is decreased, crime tends to increase. How many, how many of you remember, there's quite a few of you in here old enough to remember this, I think, the, the um, young man, Michael Fay, who was caned in Singapore? You guys remember that story? It, was, it, was, it made national headline news because, not because it was the first time caning happened in Singapore, that kind of corporal punishment happens even to this day, happens in Singapore, but it was the first time an American citizen had been subjected to that kind of punishment in a foreign country, or at least in Singapore, as a foreign country. Um, do you remember what he was caned for? It seemed like it, what I was remembering before I actually looked the story up was that he spit on the sidewalk. It actually was considerably more um, there, the vandalism. He vandalized like 50 cars, and in the place where he was staying, like spray-painted, smashed one window, he and some other people. Um, I think two ended up being convicted. And they also had a bunch of stolen property. They had stolen road signs in their apartment, in their, in their dwelling. So, and what he received for that, it was four months in jail, a $3,500 fine, and a sentence to be caned six times, which six swats doesn't sound too bad, but six canes is actually pretty severe. It, it was, you know, a long rod that they soaked in water to, so it wouldn't splinter, which was actually for their protection. And the idea was that they actually would break the skin and it, it actually was a lot like paddling because it it's on their buttocks, on their backside. And the idea was that each stroke would break their skin. So pretty severe punishment. Um, this sentence that he have, had of six was actually reduced to four because of the pressure in America and President Clinton actually asked for leniency. So they reduced the... the uh, the punishment to four canings or four strikes with the cane. Um, the, I guess the question I have is, was it, was it effective? Since we're talking about punitive systems, was it effective? Well, there aren't any records of Michael Fay ever committing vandalism or that kind of theft again. Um, he came back to America, and he did, get, he did get himself into a little bit of trouble with the law for some substance abuse, for marijuana and some various things. But he's actually living a, a productive life today. He's, uh, this happened in 20, 1994, and he was 19. So what does that make him? Getting close to 50, right? My math's not that fast, but somewhere in that range anyway. Uh, so it seems it was quite effective in his life and in his case. Um, So he's done all right for himself, and, and he's, a, he's a relatively good contributor to society, at least as good of a contributor as a manager of a casino can, can be. So, um, so can other people learn from Michael's mistakes? Again, this question being asked of Judah is, can you learn from Israel's mistakes? I shared that story just as an example of punitive damage and how effective it actually is and hopefully other people also learned from, uh, from Michael's mistakes. You haven't heard of any other American citizens, at least, being caned in Singapore, so um, apparently it had a, a good effect because, like I said, they haven't changed their laws. They still use that same kind of punitive punishment there.
Um, another thing to keep in mind in this time period is that both Israel and Judah are doing quite well economically. They're flourishing, really, even despite the, the uh, political pressure that's around them and the wars that are happening. Um, the exact time of... Uh, we're going to be in chapter 28 when we get there. The exact timing of uh, chapter 28 is a little difficult to determine, but if you turn there to chapter 28 in Isaiah, in Isaiah we get a little bit of a hint as to the timing in verse 3 and verse 4. At the end of both of those verses, it's, uh, it uses the, the verb will be, pointing to the future, right? So it's talking about Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, so they'll be wiped out, and it's speaking of Assyria when they come in and, and trodden underfoot Ephraim or Samaria, the northern tribes. And then at the end of uh, the second half of verse 4, uses the same verb, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. So apparently this is before the invasion of 722 B.C. when Assyria comes in and, and devastates the northern tribes, um, which was effectively the end of Israel's autonomy, the northern kingdoms, the end of their autonomy, the end of their self-rule. Now, there are scholars who would argue that this happened after 722, but these are the new scholars who have no room for any kind of supernatural events or any kind of uh, pre-telling that is, that is so often associated with um, prophetic utterances. So they would say this must have happened after 722, to which I would say, or that's not necessarily the case. <laughs> um, back to this idea that they were prosperous in the time frame. Archaeological digs show that Ephraim or Samaria, the capital of Ephraim, uh, uh, was quite the spectacular city. They had moved their capital uh, out of the hillsides and to this foothill area at the end of a valley, at the head of a valley, as it's described in chapter 28, um, where you could see it. It was visible from the valley, kind of like a city on a hill, uh, saying, here we are, look at us. And anybody who was anything in Ephraim and Samaria would have would have desired to go there. They would have, they would have been desirous to, to go and visit or to go and work there because it was the happening place. It was the, uh, I don't know, it was the Silicon Valley of, to the computer world of the 1980s or um, Motown in the 60s for, for singers, right? Or um, like Hollywood for actors. It was the place to be in Samaria. We don't get a picture of that very often because it had beautiful gardens, buildings, uh, really would have been something to see. We have limited exposure to that, how successful, how successful they were because of the devastation that happened in 722. And quite frankly, they're not, it's never rebuilt and the Bible doesn't talk about it that much. It's not like, it's not like Jerusalem. It's not like the crown of uh, Israel, right? Or the crown of Judah. So it's not spoken about very much. But everything historically would point towards it being quite the spectacular place. Um, and part of the, another reason that we have limited exposure or that we read little about how successful they were, although in Kings, King Ahab, it talks about how, what a great leader he was and how economically successful he was and how well he led uh, the northern tribes. Um, but because of their uh, moral and spiritual failures and the bad example that they are because of that, um, we just don't read that much about them or about the city. Uh, so again, the unspoken question here being asked of Judah is, can you learn, specifically being asked of Judah, the southern tribes, is can you learn from the mistakes of Israel, from the mistakes of your brothers? Um, there's great wisdom in being able to do so. There's also, as I said earlier, there's great wisdom in learning from our own mistakes, which is, uh, you know, it's often necessary for me to learn from my own mistakes and probably you as well. But oftentimes because of stubbornness, we need the proverbial whack upside the head with the two by four, right, in order to get the point. Um, but better to learn not only from our own, but actually better to learn from somebody else's mistakes, right, to see the damage that other people do in their own lives. It doesn't have to be so hard as getting the two-by-four up upside the head. We would do well to learn from the mistakes of other people so we don't have to experience the same thing. The, there's that old adage that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. 
right? Well, that's a double-edged sword. That can be said about good things and also about disciplinary things that we don't have to, we don't have to reinvent the same bad behavior that leads to um, hard things in our life, right? We can see that happening in other people's lives. So as we're making our way through chapter 28, we're going to hear the echo of, these, of those questions, um, questions to both Israel, which happens up through verse 13, and then questions to Jerusalem in particular from, verses four, from verse 14 and, and uh, beyond to the end of the chapter. And in all of that, we're going to have the opportunity to take the temperature of our own spiritual health, to ask a few questions of ourselves of where we're at. What's the condition of our soul by applying the same questions to ourselves? So Isaiah 28. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. This verse starts off with the, the very first word there, ah, or woe is another way to translate that. It carries a heavy tone. We, we rather flippantly say, woe is me, or woe is you, or woe is that. It actually was a quite a serious term in the Bible. Uh, it means God is against us, which he was never against Israel. He was just against their idolatry and against their disobedience, and he brought discipline because of that. Um, think Isaiah 6. Again, and I know I've mentioned this multiple times as we've been going through Isaiah, but when he beheld the glory of God, when he saw his majesty in the throne room and he's, and he's overwhelmed and it's like, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, I'm undone, I'm lost, I'm devastated, I'm destroyed, right? Um, the same root word is used here at the beginning of chapter 28. Uh, and it has very similar meaning in these two verses. The crown or the wreath talked about here, it's, uh, it's a theme in the, in the opening verses here, speaking of, of both, it's, it's talking about the proud leaders who are wearing their crowns of victory, but they're wearing them in a drunken stupor, um, like Roman victors, or, or maybe better picture for us would be sports heroes of the day at the end of, end of the World Series, right? And you see the guys shaking up the bottles of champagne, and whoosh, pouring them all over, it's, and they're not drunk at that point, um, but many of them probably are shortly after that, and it just becomes this big party, right? It's a big party scene. Uh, so it's speaking of the, the crowns that they're wearing while being drunk and the celebration and prideful arrogance. Um, just like this beautiful city situated at the head of the valley, it says, um, inebriated by its own self-import, the drunken party-goers are crowning their own heads while trying to forget the terror that they face with the coming onslaught of Assyria. And its beauty is fading. For verse 2 says, Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters he cast down to the earth with his, with his hand. This is a poetic picture of Assyria, proud and powerful, the problem is that they didn't realize that they're just the beast on the end of the Lord's leash. He's guiding and directing them into, um, into this retribution, into this discipline that's coming against northern Israel. He's also, not only is he guiding them, but he's setting the boundaries, right? He's only going to let them go so far. He's only going to let them do so much. Um, they will do his bidding in this in order to bring about justice and to bring about his discipline. Verse 3. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flowers of its glorious beauty, which is, the, which is on the head of the rich valley. So again, it's this picture of, of this rich valley and this crown, which is the city of, of uh, Samaria at the end of it. This head on the rich valley will be like a first ripe fig, so early, early uh, fruit off the tree, right, coming just before summer. And when someone sees it, he swallows it. As soon as, it, as soon as it's in his hand. It's like this ripe, juicy fig, and, and it's seen, and it's plucked off, and, the, and you just consume it. You're not saving it for a lady. It's consumed. And he's, he's talking about the same thing with Samaria, that as Assyria comes in, and they see this beautiful city, and they're just going to consume it. It'll be plucked and devoured. Verse 5, In that day the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, and a spirit of justice of him who sits in judgment, the strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Contrasting this, these drunken crowns, the real crown of glory is the Lord's. 
He's the one sitting in judgment. He's the one bringing justice. He's the one giving strength, bringing hope to the remnant of his people, the source of beauty and glory for those who abandoned their own pride and humbly submitted to him. He will give justice to the judges and strength to the soldiers. Who's the real victor, the real king? The drunken political leaders or the Lord Almighty? That's the question being asked here. Verse 7, these also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink, and they are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. The short span of, of one verse here, strong drink, is mentioned three times. Now, they're not talking about whiskey or vodka or gin or any other kind of distilled beverage because they didn't have distillation process in those days. He's talking about beer, actually. And you might be thinking, well, beer's not that strong, is it? Depends on how much you have. Is that what you <laughs> this is true. Wisdom. There is wisdom here. Yeah, it actually is strong drink. Biblically speaking, beer is strong drink. And the beer that they had probably was nothing like, especially not like the IPAs that we have of today that are six, seven, eight, nine percent alcohol, right? Which are basically like wine. Um, well, like the wine of today. The wine then would have been much less potent as well. Um, they just didn't distill things or ferment things to the points that we do. Um, but in our day, you know, we've invented all kinds of new and better ways to erase our minds, new and better ways to kill brain cells, which are ways to hide from the realities of just how much we trust unworthy philosophies rather than trusting in the living God, right? Um, you would never dream of putting battery acid in your body, right? Right. One of the main ingredients in methamphetamines, sulfuric acid. And we live in a hotbed of a community where people do this on a regular basis, whether they're putting it in their nose or smoking it or injecting it or various other ways that they're putting acid into their bodies. Um, do you guys remember hearing about bath salts in Florida? I guess it, it's probably still a thing. I don't know. But um, bath salts, not Epsom salt, right? These are... Uh, synthetic chemicals that are designed to cause euphoria and va various, I don't know, altered states of consciousness, okay? And the first time I heard about them in Florida, it was, if I remember correctly, it's like people's skin was being eaten off of their faces and various parts of their body, right? If, especially if they were, I think they were injecting it and their legs, you'd get like the kind of sores you would expect from uh, a black widow bite or from a brown recluse, right? Where it just rotted your flesh, <laughs> rots muscle. So we've invented in extreme ways, really, to help to, to make us forget the realities of who God is and how wrong we know inherently it is to be following our own wisdom or the wisdom of mankind. Well, why do people do this? Well, we, and when I say we, um, I mean the human race, right? Because I expect you're here on a Wednesday night, you're, you're probably not succumbing to these kinds of things, at least not in your life right now. Um, maybe some of you have a history, like I, I actually have a history with some of these drugs, so I speak some from experience. Um, but what we want is to be masters of our own destiny, the captains of our ship. Uh, the creators of our own reality, right? The draw of these books that I spoke of. Uh, it's, this just isn't possible. Well, those things just aren't possible, right? And something in, inside of us tells us that that's true. So what we do, whether we, um, well, we either accept it or we, we either accept that fact and surrender or we fight against it. And if we fight against it, Oftentimes, that can lead to substance abuse. And substance abuse is just one, uh, it's actually really only an indicator, a symptom, but it's a really good indicator of a declining health in a soul. Second half of verse 7, the, they reel in vision, speaking of these, uh, the drunkards in verse 7. They reel in vision and they stumble in giving judgment. For all table, tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. 
Isn't that a pretty picture? Did you experience those days? Do you remember brown bottle flu? Um, if you ever caught brown bottle flu, and that's the picture going on here. It, it's usually, you know, hey, it's fun for a season, right? I mean, it can be fun until you wake up in your own puke or you wake up in somebody else's. And it's not quite as much fun anymore. That's the picture being painted here is that there's no place left that's not defiled by, um, by this vomit. Um, it's a picture of emptiness, a picture of hopelessness. And there's no escape by abusing substance or substances. But make no mistake, substance abuse is a major topic of these first eight verses. Specifically, it's speaking about alcohol, um, but substance abuse, as we've already spoken about, comes in a variety of forms. The next section, verses 9 and on for a little bit here, is, uh, is the priests and the prophets actually responding to Isaiah's words. Um, probably a quote from them. Verse 9, they say, To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast. For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here little, there little. Sounds like Babel, doesn't it? That's exactly what it is, actually, <laughs> the last part there in verse 10. Um, they're essentially saying, why is he treating us like children? Well, maybe because you're acting like children? be one possibility. Uh, they're asking, who does he think he is? We've heard it all before. Uh, sin is bad. Hell is hot. Heaven is good, right? We've heard this. We know these things. You don't need to speak to us uh, like children. We're moving on to more sophisticated things. We want something deeper. We, we're ready. Uh, the point is that all they heard or all they're saying that they heard here from Isaiah is the same old story the wah, 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 blah, 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 right? Um, and they're not going to listen. And then God responds uh, in verse 11, or at least responds through Isaiah. He says, all right, so be it. Uh, For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. He said, you want to act like children? I'll treat you like children. No problem. I will confirm it, in fact, he says, I will confirm it through what will be to your ears the babble of foreigners. And what came to pass? Well, in 722... The northern tribes were all overtaken by Assyria. The people that were there were taken out of their land, and others from, from a lot of different places were brought in, people that would have spoken foreign languages that they didn't know. It would have sounded like Babel to their ears. It would have sounded like line upon line and precept upon precept. Um, and they were broken and snared and taken, taken off to foreign lands, and foreigners took their place. And all this took place in order to confirm the Lord's words which they had begun to discount. They didn't want to hear it anymore. They were beyond the simplistic message of God, or at least they thought they were. The North missed this message, and in fact, they've devalued God's words or the words of God. In fact, more than that, they actually devalued the idea of revelation. They devalued the idea that that God could speak or that God would speak, that he would reveal things to them. And they just didn't take his word. Uh, but there was also not, not just a message happening here to the northern tribes, but there's also a message being spoken to Judah and to Jerusalem. Uh, in the same time period as, if you remember these verses from before, I didn't write down exactly where it was, but it talked about the floodwaters coming and coming right up to the neck, right? And this was talking about Assyria, the invasion of the Assyrian armies coming in, ravaging the north, coming all the way down into Judah and, and right up, like almost choking off everything and everyone. Um, so Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, was coming to lay siege to Jerusalem. And we're going to read about this story. We read about it back in Second Kings a couple years ago now. We're also going to re, um, read about this story again coming up in Isaiah 6, but... It talked about Sennacherib coming to lay siege on, on uh, Jerusalem, 
and he sent the Rabshaka, who apparently is like a soldier in his, or a general in his army, a, a main guy, right, one of his main advisors, and he sends him to pre-warn Jerusalem. Hey, a siege is coming. Stop trusting in Hezekiah, because Hezekiah the king at that point was telling them to trust Yahweh. And if you remember, so here's the idea, okay, we've got Assyria's come into the northern tribes, taken over there, and they're speaking what sounds like Babel because it's all these foreign languages. And then there's this ironic thing that happens in Jerusalem when, uh, when the Rabshakeh gets sent there. He actually speaks in the common language of all the people. And lead, the leaders are saying, hey, please speak to us in Aramaic. <laughs> we can understand Aramaic. And we don't want, basically, they're saying we don't want to panic the people that are in the city, which is exactly why he came and exactly why he's speaking in the common language so that the people will hear what he's saying. Um, and he's confirming everything that the Lord had said. He's saying, did not Yahweh send us, send the Assyrian army? He's, he's basically saying, listen, Yahweh sent us. He's, he, he's not submitting control to Yahweh, right? But in these verses that we're going to read about in, in uh, 36, the Assyrian army is basically saying, yeah, Yahweh has brought us here. Isn't Yahweh on our side? He's speaking a truth, not the whole truth but a truth. There's just a lot of irony happening in, in that truth. But, um, so the end result here is that between Sennacherib's pride and Hezekiah's humble obedience and trust, the Assyrian army actually suffered a tremendous defeat and returned home. 185,000 of their soldiers wiped out in one night by one angel. So... Again, confirmation because the Lord had told, uh, through Isaiah, had told Hezekiah that, that they would not take Israel or Jerusalem, even though they had captured pretty much every other fortified city in the country. Um, so now in, in uh, verse 14, the message that Isaiah is bringing is turning more directly to the, or actually is turning directly to the leaders of Jerusalem. Verse 14, therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers. Who rule this people in Jerusalem? Because you have said, We have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. What's this all about? Well, essentially he's saying, You scoff at God's word, you've made a covenant with death. Um, and he's probably referring well, one, this probably isn't a direct quote, he's probably summarizing their attitude rather than what they've actually said. Uh, and, and this covenant with death is referencing a deal that was made, made with Egypt. Um, if you remember, Ahaz originally made this deal with Assyria because of the, tri the northern tribes and, and their deal with Syria. And when it became plain that the treaty with Assyria wasn't going to hold, that Assyria was actually going to invade the, north the southern tribes as well, they made, a tribe, or they made a treaty then with Egypt, um, the last human hope to stop Assyria at that point. Um, Isaiah is saying, listen, you made a covenant with death, and you think this is going to bring you life, but it's actually going to, going to bring you just the opposite, this deal that you've made. Um, God says that you've trusted in a lie. And the lie that they trusted in was that human power is a better means of protecting oneself than God's power. And in that, in that falsehood, he says, you've taken refuge. And this arrangement is actually going to, to bring about your death, not life. Verse 16, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Precious cornerstone. This should ring a lot of bells, right? Um, who is that cornerstone? Class? Yeah, Jesus Christ, yeah. I put, I put back, I meant to have them out earlier, but I forgot them over in the office. There's a whole list of verses that's on the back table. And if you want to throw the slide up for the people watching on, on the internet, all, all two of them. Um, it's all of these verses that reference the cornerstone or Jesus is the metaphorical rock of Deuteronomy and Numbers and that area. And uh, it, you could do worse than to do a study of just looking up each one of those verses 
and putting together this idea that, that God is building his kingdom on this foundation, um, on a rock, he says, or on a cornerstone, and it's Jesus. It's all speaking about Jesus or the Messiah. Um, and then he says in verse 17, and I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overcome the shelter. He's saying this foundation, this cornerstone upon which I'm building, it'll, it'll be obvious because upon that foundation will be justice and righteousness and your covenant is going to be swept away in the storm. Verse 18, then your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning, for morning by morning, it will pass through, by day and by night, and it will be sheer terror to understand the message. Uh, this idea of um, morning by morning, uh, fits really well with the Assyrian tactics. It's like this wave after wave of attacks. They would come in so far and attack and then maybe retreat for a period of time, refurbish their army, resupply, and then come back in again. And it's just, you've been to the ocean, right? You've seen waves as they come in one after another. And, and especially like as the tide's coming in, they encroach further and further up the beach, right? This is the picture that he's laying out here. Um, and he's saying, you have this agreement with Egypt, but it's, going to, it's not going to do you any good. This overwhelming scourge that I'm bringing, these Assyrians are coming, um, and you're, you will be beaten down by it. Uh, your plan won't work. It's insufficient. This is the great picture of man's wisdom, being overtaken by God's wisdom. For it says in verse 20, for the bed is too short to stretch oneself on and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. This doesn't come across great in Egypt, but this is talking about like home, group, home brewed philosophy or bootleg wisdom. Um, it's saying, listen, the things that you've put your trust in, they're too short. They're like a bed that's too short to support your body or a blanket that, that's insufficient to cover you. It's not going to give you any warmth. It's not going to give you any security. Uh, you're trusting in the wrong things. Verse 21, for the Lord will rise up as on, as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon, he will be roused to do his deed. Strange is his deed and to work his work. Alien, in, alien is his work. He's recalling here the Lord's victories over the Philistines and the Canaanites in days of old, days gone by. But this strange deed, this alien is his work is kind of an odd thing. It's because he's actually bringing his judgment against his own people. Um, he's actually treating his own people like they treated the Canaanites or like he treated the Canaanites and the Philistines. He's going to bring judgment upon them, um, severe discipline. Verse 22 says, that Now, therefore, do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction for the Lord God of hosts, or from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. Essentially, he's saying here, listen, you scoff, you fear the Assyrians, when while all the while the Lord Almighty is actually the coming surge or the coming scourge. He's the one you, that you should fear. He's the one that will cleanse the land. That will bring that through him, and he will bring justice and righteousness. Uh, in order to bring this about, he's the one bringing destruction to the whole land. Um, verse 23, the next little section here is is actually, it's a little parable to teach them. And uh, we'll read all the way through it here and keep moving with rapidity. Uh, verse 23, give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. In other words, pay, you know, pay attention here. Uh, Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he is leveled at surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat, wheat and rose and barley in its proper place, uh, and emir as the border, for he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No. He does, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This, is, this also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. 
essentially he's, he's giving the picture here that, that, look, farming, you know how to farm, right? Where did you learn that? From God. God has given you the wisdom and the insight, the brains, you know, to do this simple task. And you, you can see that it's a process. Um, and and uh, you trust him in that counsel, right? Trust him in things of greater importance as well. We'll talk a, a little bit more about this as, when I summarize here. So questions uh, we can ask ourselves, similar to the questions that are asked of, of uh, Judah and Jerusalem or Israel and Jerusalem here. Um, questions we can ask ourselves to take the temperature of our own souls. Verses 1 through 6, the idea there, God's not just rebuking them for drunkenness, right? It's not just about alcohol. He's actually accusing them of having never trusted him. He said, you're trusting in these substances more than you're trusting in me. You're trusting in yourselves and you're trusting in uh, substance abuse, actually, more than you're trusting in me. In fact, you've never trusted in me. And the substance abuse that's happening here, it's just a symptom of a deeper problem. The real problem is their lack of trust. So let us ask ourselves... Am I trusting God? Are you trusting God? Or is there something or someone that I'm putting my hope in, uh, that I'm putting my hope in before God? Perhaps my spouse, uh, a political party, an education system, world peace, a philosophy, uh, or even worse, am I burying my head in the sand through substance abuse? You know, I don't, I, don't, I don't want to talk too much about this. A lot could be said about there's, there's verses that, that don't prohibit alcohol, right? It just prohibits drunkenness and, and all of these things. And I'm aware of all of those. I'm aware of the arguments on both sides of, of this coin about uh, it's allowable. It doesn't necessarily mean it's good for us, right? I'll tell you, one of the things that I see in counseling people, one of the accelerants, you know what an accelerant is? It's like if you have a fire and you throw gas on it, what happens? Oof! It explodes, right? Alcohol is one of those accelerants in the problems in people's lives. Now, some people may have a beer or two or a glass of wine or whatever every day of their life and never have any problems, but a lot of people struggle. Um, and again, it's just it's this accelerant that causes problems in relationships. Um, if you're experiencing any kind of trouble in your relationship and you can identify that some kind of substance is contributing to that, stop, stop drinking. Uh, is it permissible for a Christian? Absolutely. Is it wise? I'm not so sure it's very wise. Okay. Um, verses 7 through 13. God is accusing them of discounting his revealed word. So let, our, let us ask ourselves, how seriously, how seriously am I taking the idea that God has actually spoken, that God actually can speak, um, that he's actually revealed himself, that we can trust what we have as God's word? How much weight am I putting down on the idea that this is, this is really what he's said? There's a ton of evidence to support the fact that this is indeed what God has revealed to us, what he's told us. Um, so it is trustworthy as his word. The, the question, though, is whether I'm relying on it, relying on it or not. Um, you know, he hasn't told us everything that we would like to know, probably, about every particular subject in the world. That wasn't, it's not why he wrote the Bible, but he's told us enough to know. He's told us everything that we need to know. He's told us enough uh, and showed us enough. He showed us his trustworthiness enough that we can take him in at his word right? Because of what he's, what he's shown to us. Um, if you can answer in the affirmative that you actually are trusting God's word, you're in the minority in our world. You're actually in the minority even in the evangelical world to a certain extent. So get used to being different. Get used to um, being questioned. Get used to having to stand up at times when it's uncomfortable. Um, get used to having a stance that's different from the vast majority of the world around us. And you have to, um, in getting used to being confronted with situations, 
you actually have to decide if you're going to proclaim God's Word as revelatory, as revealatory, um, as truth, or if you're going to join the scoffers. Verses 14 through 22, God sees Jerusalem falling for the same lies that Israel did. He sees, them, he sees them making the same mistakes. So we've got to ask ourselves, and I've got to ask myself, can I learn from other people's mistakes? Um, can we take to heart the discipline we read about in the Bible? Can we take to heart the discipline that we see when other people are blowing up their lives with decisions that they're making? And can we make changes in our own life because of those things, because we can see the damage they're doing? Um, and realizing that if we don't, we're putting ourselves in the same position as they're in if we're not trusting God. This exercise of faith starts with small stuff so that when the big stuff comes along, we'll have, our faith muscle will, will be big enough to deal with those challenges, will be big enough to deal with real challenges to our faith when they do come along. Um, are we equipping ourselves to do this? And maybe the bigger question, are we equipping others around us? Are we equipping those coming after us? Are we equipping our own kids? Are we helping to equip other people's kids when we have influence in their lives? To be able to stand up, to know what they believe, to know what we believe, to know what God's revealed, and then to stand up for that. Verse 22 in particular, um, need to ask the question is, is our fear of people the driving factor in our lives? Uh, are we letting our fear of people influence us? Matthew 28 or 1028 says, don't be afraid of people. They can kill the body. Be afraid of the one that can kill both the body and the soul. Speaking about God. Uh, verses 23 to 29, I mentioned this as a parable, and, and God's actually accusing them here of being dull to spiritual things. Um, being dull, being uh, unable to discern spiritual things. So we've got to ask ourselves in this, are, are we being willfully rebellious against God's plan? You ever wondered how we learn things? I mean, things that we, we kind of take for granted, how, how farming works. I mean, on a simple basis, it, not, I'm not, not talking about a, a simplot kind of a farm, but just in your backyard going and, and digging a hole with a stick and planting stuff in it and watering it and pff, life comes, you know, something grows. That, for one thing, it's amazing. It's amazing that any one of you can do that, right? Any one of us can do that. Well, most of us anyway. Some of us are definitely better at it than others. But it, it's almost like, in, like inherent in our nature to know how to do these things. Um, of course, it's things that have been passed down from generation to generation. But originally, God told his people how to do it. He told Adam and Eve, this, listen, this is what you do, right? I mean, this is tend the garden. He didn't just tell it to them and give them no instruction. I mean, we don't, we're not told everything about how it happened, right? But, but obviously, he gave them some kind of instruction or he just gave them minds that knew. Because if you, if you, this is a little off topic here, but if you think about it, Adam and Eve were, were created perfect, right? Um, which means that their DNA was perfect. Their minds worked way better than ours do. We always look back and we think, oh, the simple people of yesteryear, right? Actually, the people of yesteryear were a lot smarter than we are. Um, we have some real chronological snobbiness in, because we have so much technology, and we've, we've created some incredible things, but um, my take would be that Adam and Eve were the smartest people ever created, just because they had no, uh, had no exposure to radiation, no exposure to processed foods, all these terrible things in our environment that, that cause us problems. So I got myself a little off track here, but... Um, so walking, talking, thinking, right? These things all come inherent to us. Farming isn't rocket science. That's kind of what he's saying here. It's like, it's not rocket science. Listen, you and I are both smart enough to understand the wisdom of planting seeds in the ground and how to nourish them to make them grow. Um, it's also uh, not rocket science to understand that substance abuse is an indicator of spiritual decline. It's not rocket science uh, to understand that disregarding God's word or failing to spend time in his word is a symptom of spiritual decline, right? These are easy things to understand. Um, that we usually, if we'll admit them to ourselves, we know they're, they're as plain as the nose on our face. 
We're also smart enough to know that not learning from someone else's mistakes is a sign of spiritual decline or spiritual immaturity. And again, it's not rocket science to understand that a lack of spiritual discernment is also a, spirit, a sign of spiritual decline. That's what he's getting at here in those last verses is you lack spiritual discernment if you can't understand these things, if you're not seeing this comparison. Um, he's using that as an example, pointing back at, at the, the first three sections that we read about. It's like, if, if you don't get this, uh, yeah, anyway, you're not going to get this either. So how do we, how do we counteract spiritual decline uh, well, by cooperating with the change, the heart change work that the Lord's doing in our lives. By, by building our lives, uh, where do we build our lives? Matthew 7 tells us, 24 to 27. Say it louder. On the rock. Yeah, build your, lives, build your life on the rock, right? Build your life on Christ. We're being developed as people that hear Him, being developed as people that listen to Him, being developed as people that follow after him, not because of rules and regulations that we put in place or not because of rules and regulations that he's given us, but because he's actually given us a picture of how to live in the presence of a, of a holy God. He's actually given us the, listen, this is how things are meant to be. Live this way and live in peace and harmony with me. Two verses I want you to turn to. We've got just a couple of moments here. We've got enough time. One of them I've got to look at because we were supposed to turn to it a long time ago. It's in First uh, Peter. Or sorry, Second Peter, which is right after First Peter, so it should be easy to find if you found Second Peter or First Peter. Second Peter, chapter one, verse three says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. He's given us everything that we need in order to enter into His glory. He's actually inviting us into His glory. In John 17, it says that He's sharing His glory with us, and He's giving, Peter here tells us that He's given us everything that we need in order to enter, enter into that. The other verse I want you to look at is, uh, be a familiar, familiar verse, um, Matthew chapter 11. Verse 28. And this goes right along with the idea of how do we cooperate? How, how do we enter into this? Um, right in the middle of the chapter that we were in, verse 12, you could jot this down. Isaiah 28, 12, it talks about a rest and a repose. And then in... Uh, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, thankful for your word, Lord. Um, thankful for Isaiah and the things that you had him speak both to to Israel and to Judah. Father, we want, to, we want to be people who are trusting you and not burying our heads in things like substance abuse or uh, a lack of honoring your word, Lord, or any of the things that we've spoken about tonight. We want to be people that are following after your heart, that are entering into your rest, this invitation that Jesus has made. Um, to enter into that rest. We want to be spiritual discerning, Lord, able to, to see the simple truths of spirituality that your message really, it really is quite simple. Earlier in that verse, it says that Jesus says, thank you for hiding these things from, uh, from the wise and actually revealing them to little children. 
Uh, we are grateful for that, Lord. Grateful that as, as complicated as the Bible and all the intricacies of it are, that really the message is it's not rocket science. Trust in Jesus and allow your work in our lives. And that's exactly what we want to do, Lord. Help us also, Father, just to continue to learn from the mistakes of others, not just the biblical examples of mistakes that we see, but those around us as well. And, and help give us the ability, Lord, to help them navigate through those mistakes and uh, to find redemption and uh, reconciliation with you, Lord, in, in the, the very same ways that you've granted that to us, to bring that to others. Father, we're grateful for your love your goodness, your holiness, uh, your love that you exude in our lives. And Father, I'm grateful for each and every brother and sister that's here tonight, Lord, and ask for your blessing upon them. Um, ask your blessing upon me as well, Lord. We, we just, uh, we're thankful that, that you love us and care about us, Father. So please continue to look after us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.